Welcome to Round Trip Death and part two of our interview with Ralph Jensen. If you haven't heard part one yet, I'd recommend starting there. It's episode number 407. And if you like the first half of Ralph's interview, you're going to love part two because his experience gets even better. He saw all of Jesus's life. He saw Adam and Eve. He saw Noah and the ark. All right, here we go. From the time that they pronounced me dead was a good 45 minutes. They cut my clothes and then they paddled my heart because my heart had stopped. And I could see people screaming and crying, but I didn't realize that was actually my physical body because I was somewhere else. The only thing that I could feel, if you could imagine, absolute love and peace. There wasn't anything else to be felt. I was greeted by people I had known in the past. I'm back home again incredibly safe and felt at home. Before I got us off on a tangent, you were talking about you got to see his birth. You got to see him as a youth growing up. Go ahead and pick it back up there. Well, obviously I had to see him go in the temple at 12. Now, in those days, you're an adult at 12 and expected to have your own family, get married, have kids, have your own family at 12 years old. Today, we look at an adult at 21. So if you can compare a 21-year-old to a 12-year-old, that's kind of where we're at in how you look at the age of a person and the maturity. The, they uh, didn't run around playing soccer and and <laughs> riding their bikes everywhere. They were very serious. Life was serious because the average lifespan in those days was 14 years old. And so a lot of people died when they were young to get people like Zacharias, who was in his 60s, to be that old and have the medium lifespan as 14. There's a lot of youth that die and and babies. And so life was serious. Half a day, the scriptures were read to you. The other half, you'd go work and you memorize the scriptures. So... They didn't have all these fun and games. Yeah, the kids had some fun, of course. And a lot of their play was dealing with the work they did. But you were very serious. And by the time you were 12 years old, you are quite mature. You knew how to do a lot of things, uh, which our kids aren't demanded to do today. So they're not quite as mature. They could be, but they're not. And so he that's why he got to go to the temple at 12. And then, as you know, they lost him for three days. Why? Because you never travel alone. He would They would have been traveling with their family uh, and neighbors and people. You'd have maybe 100 people uh, in your group, uh, sometimes more. Groups are large. Even when the wise men came, they had, I mean, mass. I can't tell you how many, but there were a lot of servants and people there and 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 there weren't just there there weren't three. I won't tell you if there was one or a hundred. There weren't three <laughs> wise men, but there are a lot of people that went with them. And so he could be lost for three days because they thought, well, he came with us and everybody's happy and you're going home. Uh, but that's not the case. And so then, of course, he grew up. His dad was a carpenter. In those days, a carpenter chiseled rocks. Even though they did work with wood, they did work with mud and bricks. They made a lot of buildings out of mud bricks. And they did a lot of 
wood things for farm implements and their <clears throat> their wood shop was near the iron striker or blacksmith shop in town so that they could make wood to match the metal and they could get sickles and and um, wagon parts and you know all the different things you need for horses and oxen uh, they could match them together with the iron strikers and but most of what they did was chisel rock because the carpenter the term carpenter comes from the carpal tunnel uh, area of your uh, your wrist and if you do something that makes your wrist move everywhere you're a carpenter but they did mostly stone they didn't build furniture nobody had furniture in those days you ate on the floor in a, with a rug you didn't even have stools really you have little things to sit on to milk your cows and stuff but basically you didn't have anything only rich people had chairs and tables that were bigger than the floor even the last supper ta table was a very wealthy person because he had a table, but it was only about six inches tall. So you had to be on the floor to use it. And you'd lean on your left side. So I, I watched him grow up. I uh, just know that he had temptations like you and I. Uh, he had to deal with honest and dishonest people. He had to do bids for people. Say, okay, I'll build your wall. I'll build your staircase out of rocks. I'll do it for a hundred bucks, you know, whatever it is. I'll do it for $10,000, whatever your bid is, you, you come up with a way of how much you're going to charge him. And yeah, you, you have to get it done and get it done on time and get it done right. And so he was basically an entrepreneur uh, with his dad and his dad did not live throughout his whole life. And so he was on his own doing that. And so when you think him being the example he was an example because he had to go through everyday problems. You know, he smashed his fingers sometimes and, you know, he got hurt and uh, he had stubbed his toe. I mean, he, he did things, but he, he did not break a law when he did that. You know, if you were to smash your thumb with a hammer, there might be some things you think or say that might not be all that kind, but he didn't have that problem. He didn't do those things. So he stayed perfect. Well, he stayed sinless, I should say, because in Hebrews it says that he learned by the things which he suffered and being made perfect, he became the author of salvation on all, for all those that believe on him. And so even though he wasn't perfect in that he chiseled his first rock without flaws the first time, no, he didn't. Did he milk a cow the first time perfect? No. You know, did he, did he make mud bricks or put thatched roofs together perfect every time no he learned them but he didn't sin you know to make a brick wrong isn't a sin it's just you didn't make it right so fix it and so he he learned as he went and grew and became very good he was always honest and that's why it says that he grew you know in great you know stature with man and god because he he obeyed the laws of the land at the same time he obeyed god because in those days, he lived under the law of Moses, so he did everything that they did uh, with that and the prayers and and the phylacteries that they wear on their wrist or on their forehead. And uh, he did the things that normal people do. And then he followed the law of the land by waiting till he was 30 to become a rabbi. Of course, in those days, there were three levels of, of rabbi. There was rab, kind of like a bachelor's degree. And then uh, 
rabbi, which is kind of like a master's degree, and rabboni, which is what he was called, rabboni, which is kind of like a doctorate degree in uh, in how people respected you. And, and then you could debate. And in those days, they debated all the time. Every rabbi would debate with the other rabbi, and that's how people learned how to follow the gospel. They didn't read it. You know, even though they had memorized it, how you knew how to follow it was listening to the arguments or the debates of the rabbis. And whoever had the best argument, you go with him. And since Christ never lost an argument, he had a big following. They followed him not because he was the Savior. They followed him because he never lost. And so people said, well, this guy knows more about it, so I'm going to follow him. And so that was a common thing. You just don't hear about all the hundreds of other debates going on. You only hear about the one that he was involved in. So, yeah, I got to watch that. And, and of course, I got to watch The Last Supper. And everybody gets a big deal about this Holy Grail thing. <laughs> the Holy Grail or the cup that he used for the sacrament was not saved. Uh, nobody paid that much attention to it. And I, I'm allowed to tell you what it looks like. And it doesn't have a stem. And it isn't made out of brass or gold. It is made out of either wood or clay. And it looks kind of like a finger bowl. You know, it might be, I don't know, maybe four or five inches across, maybe six at the most, somewhere in there. And not very deep, maybe an inch or two deep. Just a bowl without real, without a real bottom on it to sit there, real stand. It kind of had one, but it's just basically a, like a finger bowl that you can hold in your hand. So it's really simple, very common. But like I said, I can't tell you if it's made out of wood or clay, probably clay, but I can't answer that one. So then when they had the sacrament, then of course he goes and he ended up, when he prayed in the garden, Gethsemane, I got to watch that. And there is no picture painted that looks like he really looked like there, especially when you have someone who's rolling in the dirt some from pain and he's bleeding everywhere. What do you think he'd look like when he came out of there? He wouldn't be nice and neat. He'd be pretty messy. And the time he was in there, for a short time, he prayed, you know, take this cup from me. But that doesn't take very long. For three hours, he prayed. And what did he pray about? He prayed for you and me. And if you read that intercessory prayer that's in the 17th chapter of John, that's similar to what his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane was. He was praying for us. He was praying for his apostles. He was praying for people to listen and you know that we'd open our hearts to him and and be humble and and be teachable like a child, like he says we should be. And so he just prayed for us. And that same attitude came when he was carrying his cross. What did he say to the women who were crying for him? He didn't say, hey, thanks for crying for me. He says, Weep not for me, weep for you, your children, and your children's children. He, he's always thinking about somebody, somebody else. And just for an FYI, the cross, we think of a cross like we see them everywhere and people wear around their necks or whatever. But the cross in those days that he was crucified on was like a capital T. And the cross was actually the top part of the T, the top piece. Right. The other part is called the tree. And if you read in Isaiah, I think it is. He, Anyway, the Old Testament says he'll be crucified on a tree. And that's true because that vertical is a tree. 
and it was already in the ground uh, with a pin, you know, a mortise and tendon joint. I don't know if you know what that is. Yes. There's a pin sticking out in the middle and a hole in the log and it sticks through it. And that's how it stays together. And and so he carried the cross, which was the cross piece, just that one part. But that thing weighs maybe 120, 150 pounds. Christ was a little taller than most of the people they're crucifying. So the two guards assigned to crucify him, they assigned two guards for each crucifixion and they did it the way they wanted. And they'd get the nails, they'd get the, make sure the cross was secure, the, the tree was secure and the cross was ready. And they had to go cut a new tree to get one tall enough to put him on it. So he had a new tree and they don't hewn him down in nice little beams like basically you see crosses. There was just a log with with uh, chopped off branches and, and uh, bark and everything. They're pretty rough and not too pretty and because then that would scrape on them better and make them hurt more, which is what they wanted. And so his was a new one. So he's carrying this thing. Of course, a brand new one has more sap in it, so it's going to be kind of heavy. And uh, he hadn't eaten or drunk or slept for a few days, so it was he was getting pretty tired. And that's why he had to have the other man carry it for him. And so he carries that to the cross, to Calvary, which was not on the top of a mountain, not by the middle lonesome like all the paintings are. It was down by the highway on the foot foothill of the, of Galgotha, because that was considered on the hill of Galgotha. You only need to be a foot on it, and you're on it. And so they were down by the traffic where people could ridicule them more and pick on them more. You know, maybe whip them with sticks or throw rocks at them easier. But their their feet were maybe a foot off the ground. But they they nail you into the piece, and then they then the guards will just pick that cross piece up and set it over the post and pick you up with that and set it over, and then they nail your feet. They tie you most of the time. You're tied because the nail won't hold. It will either uh, come loose from an uh, old cross that's had a thousand nails put in it, or the nail head will pull through your flesh. The guards that did Christ, he had a, uh, they picked very large headed nails because each one was made, in, you know, custom made. And they're square, kind of bumpy. So his heads were bigger. And in those days, when you think of the palm, we think of the part where your fingers are as the palm and down the wrist, you know, down between the hand and the arm bones called the wrist. But in those days, both of them together were called the palm. And so when he had nails in his palm, that meant both both of them. He had nails in both his wrist, well, as we see wrist, and, and, and his palm. They normally, in, in a lot of these paintings are romantic. They have this nice little pad. They, they don't put those neat little pads to put your, to put your uh, feet on. They don't care. And generally, the way you're nailed is through the side of your heel and the side of the post. So your your heel goes on each side of the post, and then the nail goes through your heel into the post. And so your weight is standing on the edge of that nail, and it's square. So now as you stand up and down, that rotates on that square nail. Now, how fun would that be? Have that stuck through your, your heel bone, and you're racking up and down on it. But Christ was told, it was prophesied that he would not have a broken bone, so they couldn't do that. 
And the other thing that they did was they stick that nail right through the right through the center of your wrist. There's a little opening in there. But when you stick a nail that big and square, it's going to break bones as you stick it through the wrist. And so the Holy Ghost guided those two that crucified Christ so that they did not do that. They stuck the nail farther down toward the elbow, just past the wrist bones between those two, between your radius and that of your arm, so they still had the strength against your wrist and the ligaments that are there. And and then the foot, they just stuck his feet flat against the the post, so you're in an extremely uncomfortable position. And then they drove him between his toe bones underneath of his his ankle. So he was in a very terrible position, but his heads were big enough that they didn't pull through, so they didn't have to tie him with a rope like the other two. It was in a new piece, a new tree, so that had a good grip on the nail so that he would stay there with just the nails and not a rope. They tied the other ones, but that tying was, they did that to pretty well everybody. They tied them, but this time they didn't with Christ. And so he could he could then stay on the cross with those nails, great big heads like a roofing nail. When he's showing you all of this, is there any emotion either from you or him? Well, I don't know how to explain this. The whole time that I was in this experience, the power of Christ that he got through his atoning sacrifice, because the atonement itself has no power, but it's the test that gave Christ the power. So Christ has the power that the atonement gave him. And it was that power that surrounded me the whole time I was there. It was like a big warm blanket on a cool day. And I was all just cuddled into this, this uh, power of Christ. And so when I was watching this, there were some things that happened. Now, all the prophets in history have been prophesying of the atoning sacrifice of Christ. And so now here I am watching this. And as he carried the cross, I said to myself, I said, this, this event is so big and so special and so sacred that I can't watch this. Uh, it's just too much. Again, Christ held my arm. Now you're going to watch. And I didn't watch him pass by me. I went with him like I was just went along with him wherever he was. That's where I was. And because I didn't interfere with anybody else, of course, it was it was so powerful and so sacred and so special. I thought that if I were to sit and watch all that, that it would just shred me up about how painful everything was because the the Garden of Gethsemane was was horrific for him. And, and then that same test that he got in the Garden of Gethsemane returned while he was on the cross. And so not only did he have the pain of the nails, but he had the pain of what he had in Gethsemane, which was suffering for our sins and the shortcomings and our, you know, all the injustices for us. And so that was there with him on the cross as well. So it was way more painful for him than the two thieves. And so to watch it was just very humbling, very, it was so powerful and so sacred. And I, 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 
maybe it's because I could comprehend more of what was going to happen because of this, the joy that was going to come later, the the resurrection for all of us, the um, chance to overcome, you know, the, we, we overcome this physical death by the resurrection as an Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. So no matter who you are, how good or bad you are, you're going to get your body back because that was a deal that Adam did and you're not going to be paying for that. But now your sins, that's your problem. So the atonement then gives you a chance that through your obedience and repentance, that you can then become clean, that he will take away those sins and, and, and give you a just reward for all the things that happen to you, even stubbing your toe. I mean, every little thing that happens to you that's bad, he will give you something to compensate for it. So someone cheats you, someone lies about you, uh, like in my wife, you know, gets killed and my daughter gets all beat up and she was scalped and her neck and her legs and she still suffers from it. They had to put her hair all back down again and glass came out of her head for months and these kinds of things. It wasn't her fault. And she's going to be compensated for that. And and so when when I knew these things, I had a broader idea of it. And that's the same thing God would have had. He left him on the cross where he says, why has thou forsaken me? Because Christ had to decide to do that painful finish all by himself. He didn't need, he couldn't do it with any help. He had to choose on his own, using his agency, to complete that massive test. Okay. I had this greater knowledge of it, and I think that helped, but sure it was terrible to watch. But having him by me, he stood by me the whole time as a resurrected Lord, and having that comforting blanket of the power that he had through the atonement helped me watch this stuff with alertness and awareness that I could you know, not miss anything. Wow. Was there a lot more before the end of your experience? Well, I saw him, of course, his resurrection. I saw Mary at the tomb. Saw the apostles go to the tomb. I saw him meet his apostles and the time he spent with them. And like out on the fish, you know, throw your net over here. And I got to see all those things. And I got to watch him go around the world to the lost tribes of Israel and to the people here in the northern North American continent, and he went. He went to a lot of people as a resurrected Lord to show himself to them as it had been prophesied to all these different people who didn't know anything about the Holy Land much at all. That they knew about Christ and they knew he was going to be born there, but you know they they couldn't have Peter talk to him. They couldn't have Christ in his mortal life talk to him, and so uh, prophets talked to them, and then later he did. Uh, as a resurrected Lord. That's that's amazing. I've talked to hundreds of people that have had near-death experiences. Yours is definitely a one-of-a-kind, and it's very humbling to hear. Is there anything else that you want to tell us before we move on? Because I want to hear about things like how long was your heart stopped and what was your recovery like and some of those things. Okay, well, my my heart... Yeah, go ahead and finish first, and then we'll get to that. Yeah, my my YouTube channel has a lot of answers to a lot of these things in detail. Taught by Christ, Ralph Ferlin Jensen. There's a lot of answers in there that I don't have time at all to give you here, because that's 
Yeah, I know you could talk for hours about all of this. And Yeah, there's like 59 of them. So that's like, you know, 25 hours worth of, of talking. Uh, so you can go there. But perhaps I alluded earlier to the idea of what the Holy Ghost does when he brings to your remembrance and teaches you all things. If you can imagine the writing of the first four Gospels, these people didn't walk around with a notepad writing down everything. And now they're gone. You know, now it's later on. It all happened years ago. Yet they can sit down and write about it. How do they do that? Well, the Holy Ghost brings to your remembrance whatsoever I've said unto you. So all the things that they happened, what they needed to write, the Holy Ghost would then bring it back fresh to their mind, and they could write down this the things that they had discussed with Christ or the miracles or whatever it was from years ago. And the other thing is that when you, you know, you think about it, you think, well, how many people were, how many of the apostles read his birth? None of them. How many read his baptism? None of them. How many were up on the mountain when he was tempted? None of them. How many were in the temple when he went to talk to the people there? None of them. How many were there when the, uh, wise men showed up, none of them, but yet they could write about it. How many were down in the in the trial, you know, with Caiaphas and Pilate and them? Who, none of them, but yet they could write about it. So here you have the bring to remembrance of the things that they experienced, and then the teaching all things, which is what Holy Ghost did, and teaching them things that they were not witness to. And when I started to write my book, I couldn't remember all this stuff. And uh, he asked me to write the book. I said, okay. In short, what happened? I'll give you uh, one example. I was I was writing, and he says, I want you to write the pre-mortal existence uh, and, you know, counsel all that in heaven. And I said, okay, I can do that. I've heard that story, and I know where it is in the Bible and the scriptures. So I'm looking at it all up. And and then I, I it went on for a while, you know. So I'm into this thing for a few days, about a week, I guess. And I says, okay, Lord, you're asking me to write this thing. Why am I writing it? He says, because you experienced it. You saw it. And I says, I did. I don't remember. He goes, I know. And then I got to relive it. He showed it to me again. I got to see what happened. And I got to have it known to me in ways that mortal communication does not uh, compare. And so then I could write more as an eyewitness because I had the fresh memory of it placed there by the Holy Ghost. So he brought to my remembrance what God had shown me and told me. And so I got to have that happen over and over throughout the writing of this. And then, you know, I was trying to be careful not to write it screwed up. And so I prayed a lot about it to make sure I wrote it correctly. I didn't want to write it wrong. And I also, I made a deal with the Lord when he asked me to write it. <laughs> okay, Lord, I'm going to make a deal with you. Anyway, I, I said, I said, I don't want to write just a storybook about being dead. I need to document this. It has to be documented truth. I'm not going to just write a storybook. And he says, that's fine. And he showed me how to do that. So my book and, and what I talk about can be backed up with authoritative sources. And so uh, because it's history, it's it's in the scriptures. It's It's not stuff going to come in the future and it's not uh, how many bricks are in the roads in heaven made out of gold? You know, I, I just, not that it's about things that you already know about. And that makes me, uh, I am to be uh, an eyewitness of the life of Christ. 
and an eyewitness of Christ. And I am to teach that and witness that to the people around me. And I am to teach that God the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Ghost are real and they exist. I am to teach that the scriptures are true and that if you follow them, you'll be exalted. So that's my threefold mission. And I am to teach this and testify of it as an eyewitness to anybody that the Lord directs me to talk to. So, Well, you've just done that to a few thousand people here today, and we appreciate it. I always tell my story. I can do this, and then you can still go on and ask all your questions. Because I, I, this is a testimony. It's not just a story. And so I, I bear my testimony in the name of Jesus Christ that these things are real and true. Thank you. Uh, there was something that you didn't mention, and that is, so you saw a whole bunch of things that happened a long time ago. Yeah. You saw a little bit of current with some family members. Were you also shown anything in the future? If I was, I don't have remembrance of it. Okay. And he hasn't brought that to me, so I don't need it, I guess. I want to know a little bit about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and Noah. Okay. Well, I can tell you a little bit about that. Here's something that people don't think about. But if you read in the scriptures, like in the book of, uh, like in either Moses or Abraham or in Genesis, when you read there, it talks about God planting a garden eastward, eastward, eastward in Eden. God the Father and his son, Jehovah, went down personally and designed the Garden of Eden and planted the bushes and trees and plants and flowers that they wanted planted where they wanted them planted. It was so personal and so amazing. I thought, are you kidding me? That's how the Garden of Eden got planted? You went down there and planted the seeds one at a time? You know, it was amazing to watch this planting out the garden. And let's put some trees over here. And let's put this flower over here and, and planted the seeds. And then they grew. So it was extremely personal, very careful. And he really cared about what it was like. And he cared about what Adam and Eve were going to live in. And, it, and I thought, wow, if he's that personal with a garden, how personal can he be with me, with each of us? And then one thing that happened really kind of special, Elohim, he escorted Adam into the garden. So God the Father brings him in there. Of course, Jehovah's there, but he brings him in the garden. We were there watching all this, you know, as spirits, and and there's animals and stuff around, and nobody seemed to pay much attention to it. But now Eve, uh, okay, Adam is a name of a calling, and it means first man. Eve is a name of a calling, and it means mother of all living. It's not their name. That's their calling. Kind of like Christ is not his name. It means the anointed one. Messiah means the anointed one. That's the Hebrew and Christ is the Greek. And so Adam and Eve are names of callings, not names. And so the name of the calling of Eve, what it means is mother of all living. Well, that's a pretty big deal to be the one who actually produces the children, the offspring. So when she was brought into the garden, everybody stopped talking Everybody stood in reverence. 
and uh, showed great respect to the mother of all living as she was brought into the garden. Now, another couple of things about the garden and the earth. Uh, right now, I don't have time, but I have a video on it to discuss why, but the earth was tropical. The entire earth was tropical. And so when they were kicked out of the garden and went into the lone and dreary world, they didn't leave this lush, beautiful green garden and go out into a desert. They went out into a place of the planet where God was not. And so lone and dreary means we're not, God is not with us now. We can't just go high, go up and shake his hand, you know. <laughs> He's not right there. And so lone and dreary world is a place where God is not going to be. But there's something unique about the garden that um, the fact that Cain could speak with God. Now, just imagine, here he is, this bad guy, can have a conversation with God. Of course, this this was Jehovah at the time. As long as the garden was there and, and all the people were there, anyone who wanted to could go to the garden and talk to God. But they weren't all that righteous, so they didn't do it. But anybody could go talk to God in those days. And even with that kind of a power and, and, and access, they still went wicked. And then when the flood came, it took it all away. And that, that didn't happen anymore because now the garden was gone. Yeah, it's, it's amazing how they got to live then and still went bad. Now, let's see. What was the other thing you asked about the, the, the ark? Yeah, you had mentioned Noah. So what the heck? Tell me about the ark. Okay. <laughs> well, the ark was uh, not as pretty as all these pictures that everybody finds. <laughs> Come on. It's not this beautiful contoured bowed boat. It's a shoebox. It's the best way I can describe it. A great big boxy barge. Well, it wasn't built for speed. It was just built to float. It was built to hold as many animals as it can get in it. And if you make a point, a bow, you've cut out a mass amount of space. You have people say, oh, we found the ark. We found this. Well, as it always goes, Satan always wants his counterfeits. When Christ was here, believe it or not, there were a lot of other people walking around saying, I'm Christ. And he, he says, you know, if someone says, lo, here is Christ, lo, there is Christ, believe them not. Well, there were a lot of false Christs. So then people had to decipher which one was real. And here's the same thing. Every time God does something, Satan tries to mess it up. Like the Egypt, you know, when they were leaving Egypt and the plagues, Satan tries to imitate it or get his own version. And so other people were building building arcs saying, hey, this is the one, you know, come to me. And, and so uh, there were a lot of these that, and I assume that some of these that they're finding are probably, you know, might be left over from from these these fake arts, you know, the the bad ones. Uh, I can't answer that. They might have all deteriorated, but if they're frozen, maybe they're still around. But that's not the real arc. The real one was just a big box, looked like a shoe box. Then when you get out of the flood, when you finally can get out. How many trees do you think you're going to have around big enough to build a house? Zero. How much are you going to have around? You're not going to have much. So when they wanted to build something, they had ready supplies. It's called an ark. 
and they could disassemble that boat and make themselves dwellings. And so the, the real ark was disassembled. And I think the reason for that is so we would not find it. Because God's word and God's truth is not verified by scientific, quote unquote, proof. It's verified by the deeper scientific proof we call the Holy Ghost and uh, having a broken heart and contrite spirit. That is just as much a, a scientific test as any other that we have. It's just done in your heart and mind and in your, your will and attitude. And so I, I think that's probably why they disassembled it, so that you would not have physical evidence of the ark, so that you would believe in the flood and the ark by another means, which is actually more powerful. Well, that makes sense. And also the practical side of it makes a lot of sense. They needed the lumber. Okay. Yeah, the lumber was there and they had it. Yeah. And uh, in the days of the days of, oh, I should say, building this ark, it took them 120 years because, you know, they didn't have cranes. and There was no Home Depot around the corner. They, it was a little tougher for them to build things. Yeah. And and to, to make it all fit together by hand, it was a lot of work. So, but it, the, the, the earth was tropical in that there were large trees growing. There were a lot of plants around to chop down to build this thing. So it's not quite like what you see today. You know, like if you were to go back to, say, back east where they have these huge oak trees that are really tall, that's more like what they were dealing with, these giant, giant oak trees, not like the ones they have in the west that are scrub, scrub oak and you couldn't get a, a yardstick out of them because it's too crooked. Uh, they had very large trees that they could cut down and, and make into the ark. But, yeah, it got torn apart. And, and also understand that he brought in the kinds of animals, the different types. And, but that doesn't mean, see, we have, like, as an example, uh, dogs. How many breeds of dogs do we have today compared to even 100 years ago or 500 years ago? We have way more breeds now because they keep crossbreeding the dogs. And so he didn't need to bring every single kind of dog there was in the world because, one, they weren't all there then. But all you need is the starting of them. And then they can crossbreed in time and make uh, make other animals. And That all makes sense. And I'll bet it didn't smell great. But I don't want to get into all that. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't it wouldn't be a good smelling uh, gigantic shoebox, as you put it. Well, now you've taken all the romance out of the whole Noah story for me. <laughs> anyway, Ralph, it has been such an absolute pleasure to speak with you today. Any one last thing that you'd like to leave for our listeners? Oh, well, just understand that our Father in Heaven, His Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Ghost are real. There are three separate individuals. The Father has a body like Christ, which is a flesh and bones. But the Holy Ghost has a, has a person of spirit, so he can testify to us and dwell in us. But all three are real. They all exist. They're not a fairy tale, and they do love us. God the Father is our Father, Father of our spirits. And he gives our... Uh, gives us the power to procreate children here on earth. And these things are real. 
The scriptures are true. You need to study them every day and become familiar with them. And then stay humble, stay teachable, open your heart, learn of him. And the only way you can really know it is have the Holy Ghost whisper to you. And I have had the Holy Ghost whisper to me that these things are true and real. And the experience that I had is real. It is a true story. My book and this talk is a true account of a real event that happened that I got to have, which I never thought I would have, with our Savior. He is a loving, caring, wonderful person. And I had a great time with him. And you will, too, when you let him in your life and have the Holy Ghost witness to you that these things are true. Ralph Jensen, thank you so much. Thanks again for listening and sharing this podcast. Don't forget to hit the follow or subscribe button and sign up for our newsletter at roundtripdeath.com. If you want to share your near-death experience, or if you have questions or comments about the show, send an email to eric at roundtripdeath.com. Until then, I wish you everything good that you're looking for in this life and the next. Music